Hello and welcome to Queer View Mirror on 3RRR. We are a show based in Nam, Melbourne, Australia, and we talk about all things queer and trans culture. You're with Gemma Caffarella, Hamish McLaughlin, and Sam Elkin. We want to start by acknowledging that this recording and podcast takes place on the stolen and unceded land of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. We pay our deep respects to elders past and present. Today we're going to talk about endometriosis, which is a condition in which cells like the cells that normally line a person's uterus grow in places where they shouldn't grow. So these cells, which can sit in the pelvic cavity on the outside of the uterus or even as far away from the places that they're kind of meant to grow as people's eyes or their brains are wired to respond to a person's hormone cycles. And when the body produces the hormones that indicate that it's time for a period, the endometriosis cells swell and bleed. Uh, And what that means is that the ones in the uterus uh, swell and bleed and become a period and exit via the vagina and the cells that are sitting in the wrong place if I can be as simplistic as that swell and bleed but they don't have anywhere to go so they can create internal sores they can do things like cause organs to stick together it's a it's a truly debilitating disease uh, and it causes immense amounts of pain endometriosis affects one in 10 people who menstruate but because it's a disease that affects ovaries and uteruses it's primarily thought of as a women's health issue Um, but of course it affects people who have the relevant organs including transmasculine and non-binary people and they have a very particular experience of the already immense challenges with getting um, adequate treatment and um, being respectfully treated by the medical profession. So we have a guest today, Evie Clayton, who is a non-binary person who suffers from endometriosis. Evie has very generously agreed to talk to us about the very particular challenges of endometriosis for gender non-conforming people. So thank you so much for being with us today, Evie. Yeah, no worries. Happy to be here. So let's start by rather than starting with the disease, let's talk about you. Tell us a bit about yourself. So um, as you said, I'm, I'm non-binary. Uh, I also identify as queer. Uh, I'm a scientist and an artist. I have a background in synthetic chemistry and science communications. And then I did my honours and was like, ha ha, see you later. I'm going to run away and join the circus. Um, and then I got a bit more than halfway through doing a, a Bachelor of Circus Arts when I uh, had to drop out of my degree because of the exacerbating conditions of my endometriosis combined with having a surgery that was supposed to be a diagnosis and supposed to be a treatment but actually just made everything a lot, a lot worse. Yeah, yeah well, that sounds... That sounds awful. And it's not uncommon for people to have quite a rough trot into diagnosis. So can you tell us a bit about, like, when did you first start noticing that maybe your level of pain when you had a period was, was more than you you started? You know, I guess we all go through this realisation, um, because I've got it as well, where you think, oh, this is actually more painful than it should be. Um, and then the typical experience is that it can take some time to actually convince uh, medical professionals that there is actually something medically wrong with you so what was your 
path to diagnosis like? Yeah, so my onset of symptoms was actually really clear cut. Um, I have what is kind of considered to be an atypical presentation of endometriosis, but it's it's not that it's atypical. It's just that we have this tiny little box of how we define endo and then experiences outside of that get um, erased or ignored or misdiagnosed because they are different from the like textbook examples. So I actually had beautiful, wonderful, glorious, not painful at all periods for the first couple of years of my menstruating life. I had what would be like three days of bleeding. It was minimal bleeding. It was, um, I would get like a little bit of period pain, but like what I can now clearly define as that's what period pain feels like. It's a minor inconvenience. It feels uncomfortable, but you pop a Nurofen and, you know, an hour later you can get back to whatever you were doing and forget that you were in pain. And then when I was uh, 18, I decided to go on the pill for sexual reasons, thinking that, you know, it's, it's not a big decision to go on the pill. Everyone goes on the pill at some point and it's such a normal thing to do. And, you know, like the list of, of symptoms that, you know, the list of side effects that you can get from going on the pill. Mm. I basically had like 100% of those apart from the catastrophically bad things like ectopic pregnancies and you know heart failure yeah like all all of the all of the common symptoms all all common side effects all of them um I ended up spotting and bleeding for like three months straight um I had horrible horrible pelvic pain that entire time I had horrible mood swings that I like I used to have you know I was a teenager I had minor mood swings but this was just I my mental health was just in the toilet. It was a horrible experience. And I was really scared that if I just went off the pill, that, that that wouldn't be enough. And it was really hard to get back in to see my doctor. He was actually on sabbatical at the time. It was horrible. I went in to see a, a nurse eventually and was like, this is happening. Can I just stop the pill? It's meant to, is everything going to go back to normal? And, and she was really sweet and told me, yes, you can just stop taking it. It's fine. And I did, and things settled down a little bit, but they certainly didn't go back to my previous level of normal, nice periods. And it totally screwed with the length of my cycle. I'd had a like clockwork 31 day cycle, beautiful. And and the, the timing was all over the place. I was having pain all the time, although still by comparison to where my pain ended up at its worst, still really, mild Mm. um and I immediately went to see the doctor and was like I went on the pill and now the things are really really bad help and I just kept getting told don't worry things will settle down things will go back to normal and I trusted the doctors because that's what you do and then I uh I moved to Perth for uni I'd, I'd grown up in a small town um so I had to find new doctors and my doctor growing up had been a wonderful person he was he was really actually great like as I know I just described him as dismissing me but <laughs> at that stage it was probably a reasonable dismissal whereas I really struggled to find a doctor in Perth who 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 would listen to me and who would treat me respectfully and I didn't actually realize that you needed to like vet doctors I just assumed that doctors were all good right mm. Um, 
so I was going to doctors every couple of months saying, you know, I went, I went on the pill when I was 18. This is, this is now like two years later and my periods are still really, really bad. And actually I think they're getting worse and it's getting to the point where I have a couple of days of, of not being able to function normally. And, oh, you know, a decade passed, a literal actual decade passed of me speaking to every doctor I could and every single doctor saying to me, it's normal, you know, periods are meant to be painful or telling me that I could go on the pill again and that that would solve things. No, thank you. No, thank you. I tried that. It was very bad. I actually didn't convince to go on the pill a second time. It was not better the second time. I'm just gasping simultaneously in horror because every time I hear these stories, they are freshly horrendous and shocking. But I also can't help but gasp because it's such a common story in many ways. This, The passing of a decade is, I understand, the average in between someone reporting yeah. their symptoms to doctors and the time before they actually managed to get a diagnosis. What was it that changed? How did you actually manage to get a diagnosis after, you know, just this small matter of 10 years had passed with you really, you know, it sounds like struggling with really debilitating symptoms? Yeah, so I'd moved to Melbourne and I tried to see a couple of doctors who, again, had just told me to go on the pill. And by this point in time, I had realized I was non-binary and had identified that actually I had some level of dysphoria about some physical things and that definitely that explained why I'd always actually kind of been scared of the idea of going on anything with estrogen in it I just hadn't really understood why I was scared of that Mm. Um, and I tried to speak to a couple of I actually spoke to an endocrinologist an endocrinologist who told me that my suspected endometriosis and that my hormonal migraines were both not issues of endocrinology so that was great and that was when I decided that screw it I think the best way to go about this is to find a trans-friendly doctor and then try and get a trans-friendly doctor to help me find someone who could help with endometriosis because I was getting really sick of going to supposed endometriosis specialists or gynecologists or endocrinologists who might be able to help with the endometriosis thing but then feeling like I had to tiptoe around having valid reasons to not want to do anything that might have feminizing effects on my body. My experience is that a lot of the kinds of doctors who and it's not just the doctors it's the it's the doctors it's the places that do the specialist scans you know it's all it's all the whole package of medical professionals that you end up with involved in your care when you've got endo I feel like something maybe 99% of the places you go the the reception desk or the wallpaper or something is pink there's lots of pictures of babies everywhere because often it's about um these doctors also do obstetrics and deal with pregnancies what's your your, what's your experience been like as a non-binary person you know just going into those spaces I got my diagnosis by finding a trans specialized doctor who actually happened to have experience with endometriosis and reproductive-ish type conditions. And so that was that was kind of just serendipitous and she's she's been just amazing. And so 
she's helped me to try to avoid any of the really gendery, triggery, uncomfortable situations. Um, but because I also got my diagnosis through the public system, she basically wasn't able to help in, in that regard. You know, you get sent to a particular hospital, that's what you get in the public system. And so I had my, my laparoscopy through the women's at Sandringham. And I've since then had appointments with the regular women's hospital in, in Parkville, which is actually not nearly as bad, but I just assumed that all of the women's would be equivalently bad. And it was definitely an unpleasant thing to be sent to a hospital that's called the women's. And I had one particular experience, which I feel really encapsulates what it's like, which was my, what was it? I think six week post-op uh, appointment at Sandringham with a surgical registrar. So not, not my surgeon. I actually have never spoken to my surgeon ever. He did my surgery. I asked to speak to him when I woke up and he was gone. And so I was had this appointment and I'm sitting in the waiting room surrounded by very heteronormative pregnant couples, couples trying to get pregnant. And the, the TV in the waiting room was playing some super heteronormative trash as well. Like all of the magazines are all trashy women's day type stuff. And all of that is just, I'm like already really, really on edge. I waited for, I kid you not, five and a half hours for this scheduled appointment as well. So I'm just seeing they're getting more and more uncomfortable and more and more tense. Um, and then I go into my appointment with this surgical registrar who's clearly only just received my file, which would say that I'm non-binary because every single time I've attended any appointment at this hospital, I've said to them, hey, can you please stop sending all of my mail to Miss Clayton? Because I've told you every single time to not do that. That's not my name. I'm not Miss Clayton. And so they have it on their files that I'm non-binary and that referring to me in those gendered terms is really uncomfortable. Uh, and I have this appointment and I tell the registrar that, that since my surgery, I've been in a lot of increased pain and that I'm very worried about it and et cetera, et cetera. And she tells me that there's absolutely nothing else that can be done. You've had surgery now. So all that you can do now is, is learn to live with it. And I was like, oh, well, actually, my my GP asked if I could ask you about GnRH agonists, which is gonadotropin-releasing hormone agonists. So that's the thing that stops the hormonal cascade that causes estrogen to be released, mm. uh, and it induces menopause for the duration of the treatment. Mm. Um, and my, my GP said she had no experience with it, so she wanted me to ask the the surgeon or the, in this case, the surgical registrar. And she laughed at me mm. and said, oh no, we don't offer those to girls your age. And oh. I was like, yeah, cool. So one, not a girl, not a girl. We've been through this literally every time I've attended this hospital, but also uh, I'm 28. So even, even if I were cis, would still not be a girl it's and such a it's such a confluence of 
of all of the gender issues, I feel, because I can't help but believe that the reason that the the medical system that endo sufferers go through is so poorly able to respond to our actual illness is because of the fact that, um, you know, traditionally it's been a women's health issue and, and you know, in inverted commas, women's health issues are traditionally terribly underfunded. But then you get this awful confluence where not only are you not taken seriously and you're treated like this um, small child whose main, <laughs> you know, value to society is the fact that uh, apparently, you know, quote, girls your age should be having babies, um, but, you know, you can't get any respect, respectful treatment um, in relation to your gender and also you're basically not listened to. Oh, it's just, yeah, just she, um, terrific. She went on to talk about hysterectomy. And I was like, I didn't actually ask about a hysterectomy. I asked about GnRH Agnes. She told me that a hysterectomy doesn't cure endometriosis. And I was like, I know, that's why I didn't ask you about a hysterectomy. And then just kept talking about it in terms of hysterectomies and how I would not be able to access those things unless I'd had multiple babies. And I was like, but GnRH Agnes don't actually cause you long-term infertility. They cause infertility for the duration of the treatment but by this point I was like well there's clearly no point trying to reason with this person and I, I did say to her because I just wanted to you know make that point of I actually really 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 don't care about having children at all I'm not I'm not interested in reproducing my ability to reproduce is not important to me and she said to me I this is verbatim she said Oh, well, you say that now, but six months down the track, what if you meet a nice man and he wants kids? Yeah. I'm screaming on the inside. Right. Can you tell us a bit about how you believe that the medical systems, it seems like consistent inability to actually address you in relation to your correct gender, how do you feel like that impacts on your capacity to get the treatment that you need? It definitely contributed to why it took me 10 years to be able to get a diagnosis. And I'm wary that saying this might sound like I caused that delay because I didn't put more effort into pursuing diagnosis. But I really, really want people who don't experience transphobia to understand that it is a true barrier that I I found that I only had the emotional energy to put in so much before it would become overwhelming going to appointments and being misgendered and being treated as though my reproductive function should be my highest priority and being told that going on the pill was the only possible option for me which I knew from experience would cause physical changes to my body that are not okay with me and that are being treated like caring about chest growth should be something oh well, you know you don't really care about getting out of pain if you won't try going on the pill again um that, that those sorts of things do genuinely have a huge effect and, a, and they are a huge barrier to being able to pursue treatment in that way so yeah like it's it's not only caused a lot of anguish 
when I've actually attended appointments and had those things happen. But it also then does make me go, well, I, I, I don't know how to keep doing this if I'm just going to keep getting invalidated every single time. Yeah, and I think it's a big risk for the medical system. I was I was at the carnival at Midsummer in Melbourne last year and I can't remember which hospital it was, but one of the major hospitals had a tent where they asked about feedback from queer people about um, the way that they had been treated or it was, you know, that kind of thing where they were seeking information. And there was a doctor next to me who was filling out a survey but he was I think from another hospital and he made the comment that the most important thing was that trans and gender diverse people were able to get trans and gender diverse specific treatment in a respectful way so the capacity to access hormones and the like that are directly related was important but that in the end if you had cancer you were just going to need the treatment so much that you would just go into the general medical system and it didn't really matter and I thought that that was one of the most ignorant comments that I've ever heard because I just can't help but think that there are lots of people who might be struggling with the symptoms of endometriosis who don't reach out for help because of the fact that they're going to have to go into these pink waiting rooms and you know, probably be misgendered and um, treated in a way that where they are assumed to be part of this, you know, quote unquote, women's health system. Yeah, yeah, and and like I don't, I've I've never really experienced dysphoria related specifically to having a period, menstruating. I I don't have bottom just with genital dysphoria. I can only imagine the added barrier that it would be for people who do experience those specific types of dysphoria, imagine imagine having to go to a doctor to talk about a thing that is so upsetting that it, you, you, know, you don't even want to talk about it in the first place, let alone the fact that it's a, a source of uh, severe symptoms and chronic pain, let alone the fact that I don't, I don't have a statistic for it, but my personal experience is that more doctors that I've spoken to literally have not known what endometriosis is than those who have. Mm. So even if you do go to the doctor and you put yourself through the process of speaking about that, you know, painful, uncomfortable thing to talk about, that it still might get you literally nowhere. Yeah. Like it, it's hard. Yeah, absolutely. Evie, I wanted to ask you a bit about support groups. I'm a member of The Shed, which is a transmasculine and non-binary online support group, and people on that uh, transmask or non-binary do talk about having endometriosis and uh, the difficulties that they experience in getting safe and inclusive care. I was wondering what your experience of support groups online as a non-binary person is. Are you on them? Are they good? Are they bad? It actually took me a really, really long time to find good groups. As a fellow trans person, you will probably know that the, the trans community online is just such an amazing source of community, of support, of shared experiences, of being able to, to vent about shitty things. And I had originally gone looking for endometriosis support groups back before I got my diagnosis and I of course found the nook because that's the one that 
has the literal monopoly on all of the information about endometriosis and it's very US centric and it's very, very heteronormative cis centric, like not just regular level cis centric, but like everyone's always referring to everyone else as ladies and they're always referring to their hubbies. And I had tried to persevere with those groups to get access to information, but it was just horrendous not just bad by being exposed to that stuff, but any attempt to participate in conversations was really shut down. And I do think that that is absolutely an indictment on the US healthcare system, that the only sources of like, quote unquote, community information and support are still being influenced by the surgeons and the people working in that industry as ways for them to, you know, profiteer off our community of chronically ill people. And it wasn't until a really long, long couple of years later that I came across a trans polycystic ovarian syndrome group. And I don't have PCOS, but I requested to join and was like hey I don't actually belong here but I don't belong in any of the endo groups and I'd just love to have some trans people with some hormony pelvic painy stuff to talk to I will absolutely stay in my lane and I will not talk about it about endo stuff too too much unless it's relevant I just want to be around some people and the group uh admins let me in and they're like of course you're welcome please join us and have community catharsis um, and then it was through that group that I came across another one that's Endo Knows No Gendo, which is literally my actual favorite group on all of Facebook because it is not only a really welcoming and inclusive group, but trans people are really good at vetting scientific information and medical information. And I can say that with the confidence of a person with a degree in science and science communications. I've just found that the trans endo groups have honestly sometimes better information than my doctors do about different medications and specific symptoms and then I am also in the one that is how Gemma and I came across each other yeah inclusive endometriosis support Australia it's nice to have one that's local because a lot of the other groups will be people asking about like insurance and I'm like luckily we have actual public health it's still not great it's still very problematic in a lot of ways, but hey, at least at least we don't at least we're not in the US trash fire system. Yeah, absolutely. So remind out just for the sake of our listeners who might want to join the groups, I just want to recap it was Endo knows no gendo. Yeah, that's right. That's I love that name. The best one. Um and it is, as the name suggests, it is inclusive. It's not trans exclusive it's just trans centric so there's still cis people in that group it's just basically the requirement as with the inclusive australian group is you can't be transphobic in here yeah great you've been listening to queer view mirror on triple r and we've been speaking with evie clayton who has very generously offered to share their experience as a non-binary person who has been diagnosed with endo and has been through the endo diagnosis and treatment roundabout we're incredibly grateful for you 
sharing your story, Evie. And we wish you all the best with the endo stuff going forward. And I hope that 2021 and beyond attains the least amount of pain as is humanly possible. Thank you. And to you as well. Thanks.